Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. You almost need to live with what she's doing a little bit, I think, for it to soak in. What that's, was, that's why I said in, um, the, to Paul whenever before the, the class even started that I think that like our whole discourse about the Father and the Son is grounded in the Holy Spirit, right? Like this is what I think the patristic tradition is teaching us, that just the whole, our whole discourse, our whole theological discourse from the Bible, you know, is given to us through the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, and he's saying we yearn for God through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what's active upon us for us to desire God in the first place. For Sarah Coakley, sex, sexuality, and gender are secular ways to talk about desire. So, but for Coakley, desire is more fundamental than gender. And so for Coakley, the key to the secular riddle, she calls it, of sex and gender lies in our connection to the Trinitarian God, right? And to the doctrine of the Trinitarian God. And since desire has its ground in telos, in God, the Holy Spirit, strictly speaking, she says, it's not I who autonomously even prays, but God, the Holy Spirit, who prays in me. And so answers that eternal call of the Father by drawing me by various painful degrees, she calls it, into sonship. Uh, and so for Coakley, it's the Holy Spirit who causes us to see God no longer as a patriarchal threat, but as an infinite tenderness by both inflaming and checking our desires, uh, and thereby invites us more deeply into the life of the redemption in Christ. Corrective function. Right. And so like in Gregory of Nyssa's formulation that, you know, the Holy Spirit um, is, is from God the Father through the Son. Flip that's that. Bible language. Yeah, because that's what it says in Scripture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just saying, you know, Jesus is like, well, I have to go so that, you know, the Holy Spirit can come to you. So well, she's, she's definitely not saying that. What she wants to say, we need to recognize Romans 8, because the way it is often presented in Scripture is, as in John, as you just described it, Justin, that the Holy Spirit is in some way a consequence, a kind of support, playing a kind of subordinate role. I mean, she's appealing to a patristic tradition focused on Romans 8 that, in fact, is saying that consequential subordinationist understanding of the Holy Spirit needs to be reframed by Romans 8, in which we recognize, oh, the Holy Spirit has always been played this role, and it's not just a consequence. It's not just a subordinate uh, yeah, to subordinate but, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, different missions don't mean subordination. It, I mean, so I, would, I don't know why this people want to bring in any this talk of subordination of persons, really. Like well, the Spirit I, has the work to do. Like, since we have the Spirit, Christ is always with us. Well, I think her point is that it's it may not be a doctrinal subordination, but a subordination in practice. And uh, the way that gets expressed is in a kind of patriarchal or a suppression or oppression. And women here, you know, I think she's just using women as the marker of this, because it, the, where women are oppressed, the poor are oppressed, the weak are oppressed that there is going to be, uh, based on good orthodoxy, in other words, that she's not questioning the creed, but she's questioning maybe orthodoxy didn't flow from the creed because of the linear nature of the creed. 
I think that's the idea she's trying to get around in the book by, uh, in a sense, putting practice in the middle of this thing by embodying this thing. And so that we have clear markers. And to me, this goes back to Genesis 3 or Genesis 2, you know, what is the image of God? Well, the image of God is apparently a plurality of persons. It's male and female. And male and female then, uh, not as you have it subsequent to the fall in which they're trying to subordinate one another, in which there is this kind of oppression that is predicted, but that the two are, you know, as described in Ephesians, that the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. I'm talking about Christ in the church. That is, the role of women is a marker, and I think that's the way she's using it, of many things. In other words, as long as there is this suppression or oppression of women, there is probably a misunderstanding of who God is and what the image of God is that we bear. I was thinking the first question you wrote, how does sex and gender apply to a discussion of the Trinity and the Spirit? I was like, I think if we took Coakley's approach, the question would actually be reversed. She would be like, well, how does the Trinity and the Spirit apply to discussions of sex and gender? I think that's actually the way she would have us write it. Run down the difference for us. Well, because she says, to reconceive questions of sexuality and gender in relation to the Trinitarian God is the first step in a new theological landscape. To reconceive questions of sexuality and gender in relation to the Trinitarian God. So she wants us to see these things in light of the Trinity and the Spirit. I'm afraid that that way of putting it if I'm understanding what you're saying here, part of the issue, she is, I think, working from a very, again, a, she doesn't say this up front, but I think it's a very Christocentric understanding. And so there has been a, a tradition in which the Trinity has been abstracted, and we be, just begin talking about God in the abstract. That's precisely what she's not doing. She's not presuming that we can know anything about God apart from human embodiment. That is, that's yeah. the only way we know anything. The idea is, yes, we, we talk, we understand the one through the other, but I don't think she's privileging or beginning with the idea of God in the abstract. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy have to go together, and if, if we leave either one stranded, we have an incomplete picture. Well, we have an incomplete picture of the Trinity, and we also have an incomplete picture of the work. I think it was the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, in other words, if it's not manifesting you know, the fruits of the Spirit. I was just going to say, I think that Coakley has a kind of like a key point here in her prelude, which, by the way, I thought was by far the best, you know, sort of essay in the book. But she has a really nice point here about, she says, okay, well, what is orthodoxy? You know, and she says her method, you know, doesn't assume that the achievement of classical orthodoxy is the arrival at some stable achievement or some stable place of spiritual safety. She says that orthodoxy as a, as a mere propositional assent needs to be carefully distinguished from orthodoxy as a demanding and ongoing spiritual project in which the language of the creed is personally and progressively assimilated. So I don't think that she in any way has any point. She's very, throughout the book, referencing Athanasia, you know, in other words, like the, the tradition and, and sort of like Trinitarian orthodoxy. So she doesn't have any problem, I don't think, there. But I think her point is, is that 
orthodoxy isn't something static, but that it's an ongoing spiritual project. And this is the key part in which the language of the creeds, very important, that first part, is personally and progressively assimilated, or the Kierkegaardian term would be like appropriate, right? So in other words, we're taking the, we're taking the creed and we're um, appropriating it. So that's key, I think, to, to her discussion. I, I do have a question, though, about, I guess my takeaway from the book wasn't so much um, Christological, although I think it's there, but it almost seems like the point of this book is like the pneumatological is at the, is at the center. Of it is. It is. A, it, that's why I chose it. I think it is pneumatological. I am making an assumption here, and maybe I'm wrong in my assumption. I'm happy to be critiqued here. I am, uh, you know, I'll the, critique you. No, I'm just uh, <laughs> prepare, be prepared. <laughs> and that is that uh, I see her extending. She refers to Moltmann both in this book and she in another book. She has a deep appreciation for a Bartian kind of Christocentrism. And I see her working in that tradition. And that was sort of the article I did last week. I don't know if you all looked at it. And that is that this kind of language, the way she's talking, is a kind of natural, and this is Agamben's point. And I'm not saying Agamben's right. I'm just saying this was his point. You know, this is Moltmann's point, and, and you all, you know, maybe they're saying it too strongly. And that is that in uh, a talking about the Trinity, in purely an abstraction, in a kind of Greek approach to God, in an Aristotelian approach to God. You know, Moltmann says, oh, this is where there is a departure from the sojourning church, the idea of truth on the way. And that is one of her classifications at the end of chapter two, that she's going to talk about, you know, a truth in via, is that the way you say that? And so I see her working and building on that. Maybe it's more orthodox because, first of all, she's not in any way challenging divine simplicity. But I think inherent to it is are the things that are there in the German, you know, Bart, Bonhoeffer, Moltmann, out of that tradition of kind of Christocentrism. So interestingly enough, I think you get to where she's at only by taking that step away from economic and imminent discussion, you know, the economic trinity, the imminent trinity. Uh, Agamben says, oh, that's where the church fell. Uh, Moltmann says something very similar. And so there is Rahner's rule. And of course, Rahner's rule can be misused. That is that the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. The imminent trinity is the economic trinity. You know, what, depending on what you mean by that, that could be quite heretical. She agrees with Rahner's rule and qualifies it. She says, of course, we understand that there is this existence of God outside of what we know in creation, but nonetheless, she's privileging or saying, yes, but what we know about God is in the revelation that we have in Christ. And that then gets us, I think, at her focus, I think, at a proper attention on the Holy Spirit. Who is Christ in this? If you go back to Bonhoeffer, that Bonhoeffer's going to do the same thing, but of course, that's just there in the early church, and I think she has an appreciation for that. If you had to define the logos the way that we tend to define the logos, 
is the pre-existent logos. Bonhoeffer says specifically, no, what we mean by the logos is the incarnate Christ. And that's actually what John Bear is doing. And that is, I think, true to, I think it's true to the Gospel of John, first of all, but I think it's true to the patristic understanding. When they said the logos, they didn't have in mind a pre-existent logos, a transcendent logos. They had the, the logos, the word, that's the gospel. That's Christ. Now, that kind of jars our thinking a little bit, because we're used to thinking linearly. We're used to thinking, okay, we have the creation and the fall, and then uh, Jesus, but that's not the way they're thinking. I think that gets partly at this privileging or at, at her picture of the Holy Spirit. In the, the Bible, in John, I don't think there is this linear understanding in the patristics, in people like Origen, in Gregory of Nyssa. They're thinking of Christ as the center of history, as the center of time, and so that all time refers to Christ, the Logos. But what they mean by Logos is the incarnate Christ. That gets us at an understanding that what we know of God is an embodied understanding, right? We don't, we don't know about God apart from our embodiment or apart from Christ's embodiment. And so to talk about God in the abstract, it's not that she's dismissing that, but she's saying, yeah, but that's not, that's not the topic. That's not the subject that's front and center. The subject that is front and center is, how do we know God? And, and of course, that's in and through Christ, in and through the works of the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I don't know if, if I've drawn a blank here, but um, that second question, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity and in relation to us and the Trinity? I always feel like the second part is easy to answer. The, the first part is, is I don't know that I, I always think about what's the role of the Holy Spirit within the Trinity itself, right, towards one another. I mean, I got the, the, the role towards us, right, uh, you know, drawing us closer, intimacy, uh, comforter, uh, life giver. I don't know that I was puzzled by that, but I did draw on uh, the Moltman article where uh, referring to the, uh, was it the Gospel of Thomas there, the Holy Spirit as a mother? Mm -hmm. I try to keep that quiet if I tell somebody I'm reading the Gospel of Thomas. Yeah, I, you probably shouldn't preach yeah. from the Gospel of Thomas on right. Sunday morning. Right, I'm a heretic here, so I got to be careful. You know, I thought that was actually uh, interesting language. Uh, I never thought of the Holy Spirit and uh, the role of the mother. You've got father and son, what's missing, right? So Yeah, yeah. I think she's avoiding that kind of talk, and probably rightly so, because she doesn't want to reify the gender roles. But on the other hand, I think we should know that that kind of language is there, and it makes a lot of sense if we just if we don't make the step of, in some way, reifying it. You know, with this conversation, I feel that a bunch of white guys talking about the feminine... We, we need a woman in here. <laughs> We really do. Because I was thinking another thing as well. Sorry to get practical on you guys. Um, my mom, my mother, is probably the most influential, beautiful person I have ever had in my life. And so when I think about God, and I don't know what to do with the whole mother thing, because the Bible tends to prioritize the metaphor of father. Christian tradition and history has banged on about the masculine for so long, I feel like I'm missing something. Like there's a disconnect in my experience between, 
you know, how powerful the influence of my mom and other women have been. And yet, uh, you know, been coming out of a conservative background as well. So I know we don't want to reify the idea of God as mother, but I, I guess after so long of being on the other end, right, of God as father and mm-hmm. the masculine, it feels like we probably should go hard on that a bit as well. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I mean, obviously God isn't gendered. No, no, it's a metaphor, but we've done so much with the father metaphor that it feels we need to do a bit on the other end. Oh, and that was part of the the feminism critique too, like Sally McFaggie, where, you know, they want to erase the father language, you know, change the Lord's Prayer, you know, you say, our creator who art in heaven. So that's part of what she's digging at, is there are people who want to completely erase father language. Yeah, so that's not it. That's obviously not it. Which is interesting because, you know, creator, you know, if we're talking about God, creator is something God does or did, continually creates in time. But, you know, this language of father is, in in the Gospels, it's prior to creation sort of thing. It's not a, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with creation. It's something about who God is in himself. And the son as well, you know, the father and the son sort of thing. So I, I find it troubling to move to creator language instead of father, because it moves to something that's, you know, not essential to God's nature in a sense. But uh, I digress. Well, the other thing, I mean, I hate, I hate to be this guy, but I'm going to go ahead and be that guy. But, uh, yes. you know, this, this might be why, you know, we need a more, especially in the Protestant tradition, a more robust Mariology, right? Because... Uh, in the East, you know, we have a, a theology of Mary, you know, as the mother of God and of, of the, you know, of the feminine. If you walk into any Orthodox cathedral, the biggest icon that you're going to see right off the bat is the mother of God. And, oh. we, you know, the Theotokos, we call her the, the God bearer. And, and so the reason why we venerate, uh, not worship, we venerate uh, Mary as the greatest of the saints. So that's what we consider. We consider Mary the greatest of the saints because she was both full of you know, the Holy Spirit, and because she was full of our Lord Jesus Christ. and she Full gave, of grace. Right. She mm. was full of grace. She was full of the Holy Spirit. She was uh, full of our Lord Jesus Christ, and she gave birth to Christ. And so we're all called, you know, then to, to be those, to emulate her in that, to be full of the Holy Spirit, to be full of grace, to be, full, you know, to be full of truth, uh, to be full of Christ and to give birth to Christ. I, I guess I really mean this, like at the end of, of John's gospel, the, the critical thing happens there where Christ from his cross says, you know, mother, you know, woman, madam, uh, behold your son and, and son, behold your mother. Uh, this is how the gospel ends. But Coakley does like a lot of stuff in her book with like replacement. She's, you know, the Holy Spirit is replaced by the Theotokos or the Virgin Mary. I don't, I don't really have a dog in that fight. But what I would say, I think that a robust Mariology can really help us for what Rob was talking about. Because, you know, like my, my wife always says that whenever we were, you know, whenever we were in the Protestant tradition, it's like we talk about Mary like once a year, and it's usually like one one night out of the year. You know, where we read where we read the story. Um, whereas, like in the, in the Eastern tradition and in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, quite frankly, like there's a quite a robust tradition of the place of the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ that's that's really at the forefront of, of what it means to worship. We say the Magnificat, but literally every liturgy, or well, in the Matins before the before the liturgy, you know, that whole, you know, he sent, he sent away the rich empty. And, you know, we eat that every uh, time we have a liturgy. So 
these things are I think these things are important because then I think that later on you can run into these like what what um, Justin was just talking about of since we don't have that what we need to do is just get rid of this like language altogether and that of course is to just like do away with the entire you know sort of course of two thousand years of tradition and the way that we've talked about that does, that's kind of want to do with gender on our side too why not and God oh the and, the mothering thing and son thing and father thing she's gonna come out hard against social trinitarianism too. She goes toward motions toward how this is not the best idea because people start thinking of like, oh, if God is father, mother, and son, that, oh, it's a God is a perfect image of what we need to be like in our family, you know, or in society or. The other thing I just want to say real quick before, there is also, um, especially in the East tradition, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm an Orthodox Christian, so I got to, you know, kind of bring that viewpoint or whatever. But there really is like the sophiology tradition of wisdom, right? Where, of course, like women, uh, wisdom is personified as in the feminine sort of. So you have like these writers like Wogogoff and other people who are going to write, you know, about the role of wisdom in this whole conversation, right? And again, you have the mother of God, who, of course, is, uh, I, I would certainly want to figure her into that conversation as well. So there's other ways to talk about this. I mean, I've always been, obviously there's the language of, uh, you know, even in Genesis one in the first verse of the Bible where the spirit is brooding over the waters. And, and I think someone, I don't know, Paul, if you told me this, is that the same in the Septuagint, the same language, I wonder, the terminology that Jesus uses about the mother hen. I'm not, I'd have to look that up and, and find that out. But, but, but right there, right? And even in the language of Jesus, he refers to himself. How often did I want to gather you as a, as a hen would gather her chicks, you know? So there is obviously like this language of in Isaiah of, of God saying, well, even if a mother were to for, you know, forget her child, I'm not going to forget you, you know? So that, I do think that that feminine, the feminine aspect uh, is there, but I, I do like how Coakley brings out, you know, she does give, she, especially there in Romans eight, and Paul can speak to this, that this whole idea, I mean, of, of sonship, you know, and, and giving birth, you know, like that language of the spirit is front and center, and mm-hmm. I, I like the way, you know, she does some of her stuff with iconography and she wants to draw attention to the, um, to the Holy Spirit in the iconography, you know, and how the, the uh, you know, the Spirit is often front and center there to, to draw us sort of into the, the, in other words, that it's the Spirit, the, the, inner, the inner life of the, mm-hmm. the Trinity. How, how do they hold their hands, their fingers for the two natures and then the three persons, Matt, you know, in the icons? Yeah, yeah, we're, yeah we, we were the first to have, uh, you know, what later, the, the, the Satan, Satan turned them into gang signs, you know? Oh, Paul, I wanted to, I remembered something about the feminism thing. One of her problems she brings out is uh, that they say prayer is nothing. It's you're just like having a conversation with yourself. And she points to feminist scholarship. But she tra- she traces that back to Kant. No access to the the noumenal sort of thing. It, basically, it's idolatry of trying to make God in your own image is a lot of what she goes on about. So well, we don't like the picture of God we have, so let's remake God in our own image. And that God doesn't even talk. There's no, there's no prayer. That's key because the the role the feminine role of the Holy Spirit. You know, we need to focus on the Trinity and what she's going to say that it's clear in that there is this, even in the gospel of John, that Mary plays this key role. But I think her point with this is that historically that can come to do something that is over and against what practical focus on the spirit can do. 
And this is also, Matt, very much part of an Eastern tradition. In other words, that it is the mystical tradition in which there is the awakening of, you know, when we talk about God is desire uh, or, or the Holy Spirit is drawing us in, we begin to talk about the senses. This is origin again that he's going to talk about that the uh, senses are, are made alive to the Spirit. He's going to read the, the Bible in this allegorical kind of way in which he encounters Christ. And so there is the sense that a heavy focus on Mariology, ironically, but she's doing this then in the history of portrayal of the, the Trinity, there will be a displacement. And so I think that would be the thing. It's there. In other words, we're, there is a deep appreciation for an Eastern tradition here, but I think, or for orthodoxy. But I think throughout what we have to be careful of is that in all of these orthodoxies, there is going to tend to be a subordination of the Spirit, and that will play itself out in the imagery of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit plays a bigger role than Mary. Mary is not part of the Trinity. But if Mary can promote our appreciation for the feminine role, well, that, you know, certainly that's key. That's interesting. And I think it's there in John. If you read the thing I did, uh, I did a whole blog, The Feminine as Salvation. In John, there is that picture, but throughout the New Testament, there is that picture that there is this fluidity of gender. You know, it's there in Romans 7, 1 to 4. It's there in Ephesians. It's, you know, the idea is that, well, actually, we become the bride of Christ. That's the, the role of the church, that it is on this feminine role. What The way that actually even Karl Barth goes back and reads the creation of woman, he says, oh, here is the great mystery of creation. Here is the fullness of the mystery. And of course, what he's saying is that in the creation of Eve, there is a proleptic or a pointing to the role of the church. Not to play uh, the antagonist character for Matt, but like here in Mexico, we have the complete opposite with the whole, uh, you know, with Mariology. Like, for example, here in Mexico, you know, our culture is based in a lot of absent fathers. And so an idea of God as a father is not popular at all. Here is where that, you know, pendulum swings to the other, completely the other end, in which Mary is not is no longer, you know, venerated or, or brings balance to that feminine. But it, it, she's actually worshipped even more than God. Like God is, he's, he's left behind. And most of the Catholic celebrations in our country have to do with Mary and God is just like completely ignored. And so I think that, yes, we need to figure a way, maybe, I don't know, culturally where, you know, we find a way not to swing from one side all the way to the other, just to try to find a, that balance. And so I think with what uh, Mr. Axton is saying, that, that yeah, I mean, I think, I think if we start understanding the, the role of the Holy Spirit, I mean, we wouldn't be denigrating Mary and her role and, and all she's done, because without her, we wouldn't have a lot of the things that we have, like Christ. Uh, there, it was, it was part of her choice to, to bring him to life. But 
if we could keep that balance even within the trinity then we don't have to go all the way to the other extreme and say well let's forget about the you know god the father because he's absent just like any mexican dad <laughs> let's yeah. just worship the mom like like we always do because i think that's a problem at least here like i cannot speak from whatever happens in in your countries uh but here that's an issue yeah. parents uh, dads are absent so let's ignore <laughs> You know, and I think Mexico yeah, no. and Japan share this, but I, I'll make a leap. I think this is true of many traditional cultures, and that's kind of the danger in Gnosticism. There is a, a you know, there is a kind of reifying or idolatrous notion of the feminine, and that's what she's also resisting. And so the the there is a kind of fine balance that we need to have here. And so I think historically there, you know, that in Japan, Amaterasu is a goddess and she is the supreme deity. And of course there is this key role. It, it, it's kind of funny how it works out because if you look at Japan, women seem to be suppressed and oppressed and they are, but in another sense, there's this key role for the feminine. And I think that's true through, you know, that's there in the gospel of Thomas, that's there in the Gnostic religion. And so that's the idolatrous aspect of this on every hand, we'll come up against forms of idolatry. That seems to be a predominant form in traditional cultures. I grew up in uh, Catholicism and I don't know if it was be because I was in a, heavily Hispanic uh, area growing up or not, but the picture a lot of times that we had of Mary was somewhat of the one, Alan, that you portrayed. She was almost a, uh, the father, she kind of speaks on, on, you know, on our behalf because the father is so vengeful and wrathful at times that we need kind of that feminine soft touch. And that I, I do remember uh, whether or not that was actual doctrine or or just practice because there's obviously there's a lot of practice that's not necessarily official doctrine per se within different groups but yeah i i mean i i think there's uh both uh, you know matt and alan i i see both sides where there's somewhere we've we've left her completely out and and then we've also made her into uh, a god of sorts that she's not and the danger is that we'll shrink this whole thing what is called for is a, a radical looking at, re-looking at an appreciation for human embodiment. And we're going to get that then through the role of the spirit. You know, I think of the, the spirit hovering over the waters, that there is this kind of feminine role in which the, the very being of God is there. Could we, and maybe it's going too far to say it's there in the DNA of the universe, that it's uh, there in, you know, this opens up to us. We're, we're going to have a opening of the meaning of the world to us in a new fashion. And, and so that the human senses, the human emotions, the human gender are all a medium to understanding who God is. And the danger is that we'll just reduce everything to a kind of reified, you know, that, that's the idolatry that is there on every hand in this, whether it's the idolatry of the father, the idol, you know, that any part of this could be a part of the idolatry. And so yeah. let's say, what is her 
you know, theologia total, however you say that. What does that mean? So she said three things she's not doing. She's not yeah. doing anything that anybody else, but she's she said she's doing this total theology. Yeah, and then she says why the you know feminism and social sciences do matter to theology. And then at the end of the chapter, she sums up the conclusion. So she talks about the hallmarks of them. She's got. Can we, without going through her nine points, can somebody take a stab? at saying what she means by her the, her method, this the, uh, total theology. The theology, theological method that considers all expression, all of humanity, whether it's in our expressions or our embodiedness. When I say all our expressions, I mean poetry, art, theology, music, anything we make and then who we are. I think that he's trying to say, or uh, what I'm getting out, what I'm getting from it, is that seeing how the spirit re reorients our desires, uh, that is our ability to see rightly. What her project is about is for us to see everything through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, each according to his ability. Maybe total conversion, maybe? I mean, because she talks about converting your loves, your desires. Convert. She talks about you need to be ethically converted basically you need to be intellectually converted <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the, it's the, a total conversion yeah it's theosis in the east is what we call it, right it's it's unity with god and i mean that's traditionally i think how the holy spirit and she she does a little bit with this right that the holy spirit is usually understood as sort of like the bond between the father and the son right that that's inadequate but but isn't that what we're being called to right is union with god the, the so the so the way so this again is gregory of nissa uh, this is his formula that the spirit is from the father through the son. And so it is that we're to be united, you know, with God through, through the son, uh, through the spirit in the son. Right. Uh, so it's kind of like, it's kind of like we're, it's kind of like we go back through, you know, to be, to be united with God, but for it's, her, it's the Exodus return us. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that, that is it because of the whole thing about desire, and this is critical, I think, to her, her whole argument that God himself is both the ground and the telos of our desire. He's the beginning and the end of our desire. Our desires arise from our being made in the image of God and, and our, our, our desires are fulfilled in God himself. And that is the Trinity. So that whenever Paul said earlier that ontologically in some way God this but what you were saying there's something on the order of like God desires but it's not a desire like a human desire born out of lack it's a desire born out of an infinite sort of overflowing fullness for the one for the other and the trinity in this sort of infinite circle of love and of giving and reception and giving and reception that we're called to participate in that's the theologia you know theologia you know totale whatever she's calling that that she's inviting us into this fullness of the trinitarian life through the spirit in the Son, to the glory of God the Father. And where do we encounter God? In the Spirit. In one another, uh, in, in each other, in the, uh, in the neighbor. In the, uh, the, the, to me, though, that's a complicated, you know, because I think, we, I think we encounter God, you know, in the Eucharist. I think that we encounter God in, in the neighbor, in the Word, in prayer. At earlier, you know, you said, well, we don't know God, and this might be too far out of the discussion, out of the parameters, but I do think that we, of course, know God through Christ. But because of Christ and because of our illumination of, in the Holy Spirit, one would hope that we could also recognize God in the good and in the beautiful and in the true, so that the Spirit opens up our sort of the life of the mind, you know, to be able to apprehend the logos that infuses all of creation. Uh, that's the only way we got, and that is an important step. 
I think people get frustrated with her a little bit, and I understand the frustration, that there's a kind of ambiguity or a seeming ambiguity to what she's saying. But it's almost it, that, that if you get the focus of what she's wanting to say, as Justin said, plundering you know the wealth of the Egyptians, that is that the wealth of the Egyptians or the wealth of creation is all around us. And it's there in sociology. We don't need to reject sociology. We don't need to reject psychology. Certainly, we don't go with the presumptions or the presuppositions of some sort of imminent frame. And that's her point with sociology. Uh, you know, this is Milbank's kind of dismissal of uh, sociology. And she's going back to Ernst Trelch. Then and giving us a con, but I, I that we can do that with everything, and, and you all said it beautifully. I, I you said it wonderfully. So she goes against Bart here. He kind of rejects philosophy yeah. and a natural theology sort of thing. He just wants to focus on Christ. You know, say nine to natural theology. It's a kind of handing over of philosophy and the natural sciences and everything to them on the other side, and say this is your realm. You do your thing. We're just going to talk about theology. <laughs> you know, That's they good. have insights. We need yeah. to use these things. It would be to our peril to ignore. Yeah. In fact, because her point is they point out the exact deficiencies that are in the church and are in theology and, and in history. These are critical tools that help us to better be people of the spirit, to be better Christians. So we need to take their critique seriously about patriarchy about how women are treated. These are problems in the church. We need to use and turn to these people and sources that help us probe and understand our problems. Then we can, you know, work on them. I might have misread her, but I, I thought she's not only saying we can learn from other disciplines, I thought she wants to actually, there's a quote from uh, her on one of the lectures, YouTube lectures, and she says that she, Theology total is a form of theology that does justice to every corner of human experience. I, I took that to mean that she's not only saying, oh, I'm just going to see what good there is over there. I actually want to enter more fully into all of life, all of experience, and do justice to it. Not just, I think they're mostly wrong, but I'll borrow you know, a few things from them here and there. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's because right. right. they're products of our desire, you know, or yeah. some, you know, so like art, you would say, you know, we're really desiring God because we're desiring what's beautiful. Yeah. When we yeah. seek the truth, we're really yeah. desiring God because God is truth. You mm. know, th this mm. sort of thing. When we seek the good, you know, want, we want to do what's right. We're really seeking God. So, yeah. I mean, if you look at all things through the lens of desire and you're saying yeah. all those desires, all those products yeah. of our desires are really yearnings. And it's quite positive, right? It feels, feels quite positive. You're, you're not engaging people from a sense that we know better than yes. you yes. might borrow some insights from you. That's, it right. Seems That's right. It's an yeah. unmatched. She uses the term unmastery. We're not yeah. the masters. We're the, the pupils in this. Rob, yeah. I'm glad you brought that out. That the the way that you said that was better. We have to fully appreciate the context, and in that sense, maybe the phrase "plundering the Egyptians" is wrong. There is a greater appreciation 
for what the Egyptians got. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're partly the Egyptians ourselves, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> I think we share we share some of that with them. Yeah. She has this great quote, uh, and it's in the context of onto theology. Um, it's one of my favorite quotes in the book. So she says, and maybe this is kind of like with Bart, right? But, I, but I, regardless of that, but she says, to know God is unlike any other knowledge. Indeed, it is more truly to be known and so transformed. I thought that was a, that was a great, that's a great quote because we're talking, she's, what she's saying is, is that we don't know God um, as like an extra item, you know, uh, sort of in the universe, along with all the other <laughs> objects of knowledge, you know, it's, it's kind of a key point that she's making, you know, but she's saying the whole point of all this whole book is that the, it, because of the Holy Spirit, that we're, that we're, we're not only that we're coming to sort of know God, to, to be known by God. This is a, uh, St. Paul says this, he says to know God or rather to be known by him. I think in Galatians, it's, it's kind of an interesting way to even think about knowledge and especially knowledge in the Holy Spirit is that we're being invited into the Trinitarian life, not only to know um, something as an object, but to be known, you know, to be known as, you know, subject. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing, right? Cause we would normally other or objectify uh, another person. But in Coakley's vision, she's saying that no, part of part of what it, part of what Christian salvation is and Christian um, anthropology and embodiment is all about is to be invited into the Trinitarian uh, life of God, where we don't just know, but we're known. We're not just the knower knowing, but we're also the knower who's being known by the other. You know, so there's a, this infinite sort of giving and taking this this union with God that we call theosis in the East, deification. That someone like Gregory of Nyssa will say, and not only as cool as that is, but he calls it, you know, apectasis, which is an infinite sort of outstretching of that being known, of knowing God. So he's so Gregory of Nyssa says that this is going to be an infinite, eternal process um, by which not only we know God, but we're more deeply known. And so we, you know, we more deeply love God and we realize how much more deeply loved we are by God and that it's an infinite progress and in stretching forth up into an, an infinity. It's quite beautiful. Yeah. And I think she's very appreciative of a theosis of participation, but of course, once you read Romans eight, you have to be mm -hmm. because that's the description. <laughs> Let me give you, this is from page 88. Her effort, and you've done it. You've done it beautifully. She says it's a holistic manner of doing theology in conversation with uh, postmodern feminist theory, insights from social sciences. She does that, you know, with Trelch. I may have been misunderstood when I was talking about, you know, you talk about the mystical and the church type. Agamben does the same thing. She's just describing sociology here. And that sociology plays into our conception of the Trinity. How could it be otherwise? You just have to recognize that that's the case. And I think that's, David, where your point with the praxis. Sociology pertains to the praxis of this thing. That is the way we conceive of this, the way we conceive of truth. She says that it uh, involves an attentive openness of the whole self. And here, I think this is very originist. Intellect, will, memory, imagination, feeling, bodiliness. You know, that what origin is go going to do, what other mystics are going to do, is talk about the rational senses in terms of spiritual senses. It can be understood as ascetical, contemplative, prayerful, and the practice of unmastery. 
in which the theologian seeks to know and speak of God and all created reality in relation to the divine by surrendering control. Surrendering control, all human desires to God through the work of the Spirit. It's Paul, when I read this, it made me think of your whole thing on, uh, you know, so in Philippians 2, that Christ didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And of course, you know, but in Genesis 3, that's exactly what they're, you know, Adam and Eve are tempted to do is to grasp, is to master, is to think of your whole thing there that you do there, that that, that is the temptation is to imagine that we can that we can grasp this thing and we can master it and we can and do so just intellectually yeah. also apart from like the ethical, you know, but she, I think that, I think that really she hits on, she says, again, orthodoxy in Theologia Total is understood as a project, the longed for horizon. So again, the desired horizon of personal transformation in response to divine truth. Orthodoxy is no mere creedal correctness, no imposed ecclesiastical regulation. At that horizon of true orthodoxy, theology, spirituality, and ethics are fully united. Wow. So, He's talking about a holistic sort of the, the spiritual, the moral, what Paul was just describing with the senses, uh, the imagination, the will, the intellect, the memory. It's, it's, it's totally, it's our whole being. It's our, our whole being is being called into unity with God. Yes. He so, says, if you want a right contemplation of God, right speech of God, and right ordering of desire all hang together, that's kind of, that's her point. And she's making quite the claim and she's aware of it. You know, she's saying... She was quite literally, I think, says in several different places that we cannot properly understand in the modern discourse, gender, sexuality, and sex, apart from a Trinitarian theology. She's quite serious about that. I mean, I think that she's making quite the claim. I mean, I would agree with her that, um, you know, she's saying that we're necessarily going to misunderstand what it means to be gendered or properly sexual beings, or we're going to misunderstand human sexuality apart from the Trinity. That is what the book is about. I mean, this Sunday, the text is love, desire, whatever word you want to use. Love the Lord your God, then all your heart, <laughs> all your soul, all your mind, all your strength are there. Let me throw out something here. I was trying to do this with Moltman. I think she's doing it throughout. That when we talk about love and desire, that we have inadequate language for encapsulating what this is. But we know that desire and love come with a particular ethos, a particular atmosphere, what we would call an emotion. The word emotion, of course, is inadequate. We know that love is not simply an emotion, but we know that it is inclusive of that. And I'm afraid that our modern language about feelings, emotions, in a way have cut us off from the description that we have here. What she's describing is a loving atmosphere. It's a, a joyous sort of feeling. And yet in our economic and imminent Trinity sort of way of talking, it's almost like we want to picture God devoid of our experience of love. And of course, the opposite should be true, that God's experience of love is a fullness of human emotion, a fullness. The universe is lit up with the love of God. And I don't know that, you know, this is the difference between a Greek and a Hebraic way of talking. For the Greeks, the way of talking about, first of all, the word emotions is, a, is an 18th, 19th century innovation, even in English. And so when we're talking about this, we're not really dealing with 
either the Hebraic or the Greek universe. And so I think what we've described tonight is this understanding that is it's full of this feeling of this joy of this what we would call emotion. And I don't think we should hesitate from including that. I think that's what I wrote in my paper, Paul. Oh, good. <laughs> that the whole Greek and Hebraic way. I've kind of fallen in love with that last couple of years is as far as it's it's so much uh, fuller and vibrant. And, and I feel like that's what she definitely was dealing with in this second chapter. There's also an interesting thing in here where she's trying to overcome Kant, Kantian division of what you can know and what you can't know. So that automatically puts God outside of the study of sociology or feminism, but by placing the experience of the Holy Spirit at the heart of the project, you're, she's saying, you know, you have direct access to God. It's all God. I mean, we're yeah. in continual, continually have experience, and not just with the economic trinity, not God in some secondary sense, but with God. And that was Agamben's point. I appreciate that article, Matt. You know, I, I'm not saying I agree. You know, I, I'm never sure where Agamben's coming from. Well, he's an atheist. I mean, <laughs> I think he is. I, I begin to question that. Uh, but anyway, the the idea of an economic and imminent trinity that we're always removed from who God is, and that is his his point is that theology was secularized before the secular because theology was always presuming to work in the economic realm. And not in the, you know, imminent with, not with God, with who he is in himself. And his point is, with that, you pass from, you're actually doing theology in a secular mode. I thought that was a very interesting point, that theological secularism precedes the secular. Because secularism, well, it's all an economy. Is this the whole nominalism thing? Is this what he's talking about? Well, that's actually Moltmann that brings up nominalism. I noticed that. I noticed that. Yeah, you mentioned that last week. But I'm not a nominalist, so I don't have to overcome my nominalism. But most people are nominalists and don't know it. But you understand that Protestantism, this is a... Is a, based out of nominalism. It, yes. it, is, it is based yes, in nominalism. I understand, yeah. yeah I understand. So, that's how they read the Bible, too, you know, it's... A, and so Everything. that that's the thing that we're getting beyond. If nothing else, we're, we're overcoming nominalism. I think Moltmann attacks that in a very direct way. Make no mistake, I think Moltmann is a heretic, but I, he's my favorite heretic. You know? I thought Origen was your favorite heretic. Oh! <laughs> I want to retract. I'm not, I'm not positive that Agamben uh, is, is an atheist. I don't want to... Uh, He's a well, Christian atheist, isn't he? Christian atheist. Oh, well, I, I began to question it because, you know, that one... Uh, that uh, Yeah, he's giving that sermon in front of the bishop, and in, he's doing it at Notre Dame Cathedral. He sounds very Catholic. Yeah, I know. I wondered. I, I shouldn't have said oh, that. How, how can he not be a Catholic? He's Italian. He grew. I mean, he's coming out of a Christendom, Christian worldview. Of course, he's a Christian. It's yeah. just that he's not. He's not going to sound like your typical. You know what I'm saying? It, it, if you're a European, you know, I. He's I an atheist Christian. Yeah. You, if, you can't. You can't. You can't escape Christianity. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. If Zizek converted, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I was what I we were talking about all this stuff, and I was thinking of like 
when I was in Toronto for five years, the consortium of, of seminaries, there was a bunch of them. You could just walk and you could take classes. And one the, there was a very liberal Anglican one and a more evangelical Anglican one. And at the very liberal one, there were professors going by post-Christian. <laughs> you know, yeah. they were post-Christian. You know, they've been secularized out of Christianity or whatever. You know, they, and the interesting thing, I think that somebody like Zizek would find that disgusting. Zizek is a very conservative, fundamentalist atheist. Vatican too. <laughs> you know, those who seek God, you know, you yeah. can be an atheist and be okay. Yeah, that's, need- that, that's a desire thing. But I was just, I was pointing that out because though, but those people stay in the seminaries and they teach. And I'm just like, what, what are you doing? You know, probably, you know, pension and all that stuff. They enjoy the scholarship, but they have no Christian commitments. Like yeah, they don't was- pray, they don't worship. They just, you know, study these in- texts and teach. Guy like, at, uh, I, and I, he was from Iceland at Scuba University and he said you know I I was thinking of I wanted to become a a priest I didn't feel quite right because I am an atheist and (laughs) (laughs) but in Iceland that wasn't any obstacle you know personal obstacle commission on ministry is not going to ask you even that question like Uh so you know do you believe in God they're like well what does that even mean you know I'm a pantheist or something like that but I'm just saying she's writing in kind of that context, too. She is, uh, yeah. One thing call- we're not talking about is the to take it from the academic, something that's very, you know, we can almost be maybe in our sagacity to kind of float off and talk about more of the academic when really Sarah Coakley is saying something probably more along the lines of stop looking at porn. It's certainly anti-idolatrous. That's what I'm saying. That's what yeah. I'm saying. So she's saying, I say that in kind of like a joking, shocking way or whatever, but uh, you know, what she's saying is that impetus, you know, that whatever we're looking for there with beauty or satisfaction or fulfillment or, you know, even like orgasmic sort of, uh, you know, ecstasy or whatever is like, we're, we're searching for God, but it's a desire that's wrongly ordered towards, you know, towards the finite or towards the created. So what she's going to talk about later is how the spirit is going to kind of like smash and break and crush and, you know, burn and all this other stuff. Like that that's the primary work of the Holy spirit is to, is to reorder our desires. And that's a very painful uh, process because what we would normally do is instead of looking at a beautiful woman as a sister, we would objectify her or we would, we would in some way try to master her, masturbate to her or whatever you want to call it. But that's, I mean, it's a real thing. Like in other words, like when we're talking about ethics, we can say, Oh, we're just, you know, we're talking about all this like kind of academic, you know, stuff. But I think that she really is saying that to participate in the life of God and in the Holy Spirit, that's going to mean almost certainly like a painful sort of purgation because our, our desires are just because of our fallenness, because of our sinfulness, our desire, we're, we're in the habit of trying to fulfill an infinite desire with a finite end. And so that's going to be a painful process of the of the Holy Spirit to to transform those sort of perverse, you know, longings that we have. And, and it's, it, you know, yeah. it's, it's a conversion of the imagination. 
That's um, right. And she goes into the whole thing with iconography that I love. You know, I do like her part on iconography because she's talking about, well, it also gave me like a more of a much more profound respect for, you know, Byzantine uh, iconography. What she's doing there with iconography is she's saying that, uh, and remember, this was like, this was a big deal. This in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, there was a whole big thing about this. They wanted to do away with the icons, you know, that there was the iconoclasts who wanted to say no more icons. That's worshiping. That's idolatry. That's the, and so they had a whole, they held a whole ecumenical council and they said, no, actually icons are uh, ways that help us to reorient our, des our desire towards the beautiful and towards the good and towards the true because of what Justin just said, they retrain our imagination that there, she goes and she does a whole nice thing with art. She says that actually with uh, art and with icons, there's a way that we learn and, and that they teach us in a way that, that is that maybe only art can is capable of because of, you know, what it leaves out because of the unspoken. She, she does a whole thing. I'll leave it to you to read. But I guess all that to say is, is that, our gaze needs to be, especially as men, as Rob so uh, astutely pointed out, needs to be reoriented towards the truly, you know, towards the good, towards the pure, to the beautiful, right? And the, and the icons and her recounting um, really do have like a role to play in that, that, that we can, you know, you can gaze at the computer screen or through Instagram models or whatever, you know, you can do that. Well, that's one way to train your imagination. Or, you know, you commune through the Holy Spirit uh, with God, you know, before the icons and reorient your, you know, the male gaze, reorient our corrupted sort of human heart towards, you know, the mother of God, towards Mary of Egypt, towards, you know, uh, Dymphna, towards these other, you know, saint, these other saints that we can, and in the Eastern tradition that we can actually have communion with, that we can actually cultivate fellowship with them because we don't believe that they're dead. We believe that they're alive, maybe even more alive than we are because they're with, they're with Christ in a way that, um, and they're saints, you know, they're in the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've lived, you know, they've been united with God. So I do like what Coakley um, is doing there because, and, and I say, I go on, I go with all that uh, spiel to say that, I think that the tendency in Kierkegaardian, you know, Kierkegaard's language is what he calls sagacity. And that's sort of like a wisdom that would have us kind of abstract this whole thing into something else other than repentance, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is near, you know, look to the things above and, and not just to the things below and be transformed by the Holy Spirit through that. And I think her, her place in this is very Kierkegaardian. So she comes up with the three types. And I think she's really working from the mystical type. The mystical type is not a separation from the church type, but what it, it amounts to is that there is this continual corrective from the edges, from the place of the Holy Spirit that tends to get stamped down, that tends to get subordinated in what Trelch is calling the church type or in what Agamben is calling the settled church. I thought you'd find this interesting, Paul, because she talks about uh, bodily practice of contemplation or about courting the unconscious, like a conversion of the unconscious, letting the spirit go at work on your unconscious. And all I could, all I could think of was Doran, Robert Doran's work, because he's all about this thing called psychic conversion, which is yeah. about basically the work of grace, the work of the Holy Spirit on your unconscious to destroy the blocks from trauma and that inhibit insight insight is always insight into phantasm which just means you know we understand things through images and and you know things like this 
So he, you know, he wants to talk about how if we have blocks and the unconscious, that realm is all about the image, you know, isn't it? I don't know how it depends on how you mean that. Adorn, of course, has a deep appreciation of Freud. But, you know, he just takes it to a deeper level. It does. It reminded me of that because she's talking about we need it's essentially bringing into the discussion of a, a taming and cleansing of our unconscious as well. These are old insights from like the fathers. They don't use that language, but, you know, they know what they're doing. And I guess it's something that's kind of been lost in modern theology. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Dan, I always look to you to see if we've wasted our time and we've just been, or if in fact we've done something valuable, uh, give us the final comment. <laughs> oh man, fairly fast moving for me as you know, Paul, but um, I'm, I'm used to the, the four ways of knowing truth. You know, we talked about them in one of the previous classes, reason, scripture, experience and tradition and within the Protestant tradition that, you guys know so well, it's sort of oftentimes full of the problems that we've sort of been deconstructing in many ways and having the experience of light breaking into darkness in some sense when correct way of thinking sort of comes into your, your conscious. I was, I was reminded when you guys were talking about the conversion of um, your imagination, C.S. Lewis and his sort of conversations about um, the work of George MacDonald has like almost the exact same insight about what that experience is like. And I just finished reading um, The Hobbit again and just very much having that like experience of when there was darkness, then there's light, when there was grayness, then there's color, when there's like nothingness, which like some sort of definition of sin could be within these frameworks, like having that very exciting experience of almost yeah. like a, as you're saying. Dan, thank you, and God bless you for bringing George McDonald into this Holy Spirit conversation. How can we even have a conversation about the Holy Spirit without reference to the great George McDonald? <laughs> yeah no but i was um taking notes and fascinated by the whole thing i'm, I'm learning here so thank you for all that you contributed it's brilliant okay all right then we're we're affirmed may may we all leave converted out of our onto theology yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> thank you guys i love you guys this is a wonderful part of my week so love you too thank you guys all right see you next week you guys. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website forgingplowshares.org.